Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. It was amazing the number of amicus briefs that came in from all across the country to support us and moreover to support the First Amendment. That was Arnold Lehman, senior advisor to the chairman of Phillips Auction House and director emeritus of the Brooklyn Museum. A past president of the Association of Art Museum Directors, he directed the Baltimore Museum of Art for 18 years. Over a long career, he has resisted categorization and put advocacy ahead of the status quo. Refreshingly candid, fearless, and funny, he has rolled the dice on organizational reinvention, questioned the canon of art history, and challenged received wisdom at every turn. We found him at his summer home in Maine, where he and his wife Pam have been for several weeks. Welcome, Arnold. Max, how are you? I'm great and very happy to have you on the podcast, Arnold. I'm curious, we've had parallel tracks since the spring, each of us recording interviews on digital platforms, you on Philips.com and me here. And I'm struck, for both of us, how our conversations from the beginning of the pandemic and before George Floyd's murder seem to be from another world. Do you feel that way too? Well, mine were actually from another world in that I did, I don't know, 22 or 24 recordings within a couple of weeks so that almost every one of my recordings was at least a month or two before that tragic event. Interestingly, I did go back to several of the people with whom I recorded and asked if they wanted to record again. I had one person who simply said, everything was such a blur that they couldn't even think of talking about it now and just pulled out. And uh, one other person and I re-recorded. But even so, I would agree with you that listening to those today and after the conventions, makes it truly seem from a distant planet. And Arnold, well, we can imagine that at some point the pandemic will disappear, or at least recede. We don't have that same assumption about structural racism, do we? And not only will probably not disappear in my lifetime, my fervent hope is that we'll, we'll make some real progress. There are so many, so many things that weigh upon that. The coming election, of course, is one of them. The key, I think, over the next weeks and months is awareness. We need to be aware of what's happening as a country, or at least the leadership of the country, before I think we can tackle the actual issues. But I must say, on all of the various boards that I'm on, or where I'm asked for advice from time to time, everyone has upended their agendas and their schedules and their board meetings to talk about this issue and how they're going to address it. I'm very pleased about that. And I think I would probably resign from a board that didn't take this into critical account. 
You have been that voice, Arnold. You were easily the most outspoken director in the Association of Art Museum Directors about the dearth of people of color in positions of responsibility at museums. You railed about it, affectingly, year after year. You demanded change. So all these years later, how's the museum field doing in that respect? Not well. I actually just responded to a very good, solid, honest piece in Hyperallergic from Betsy Bradley, who is the head of the Mississippi Museum of Art and who runs an organization that I'm involved with in Mississippi that brings the issues of racism together with the ways in which museums and other art-related programs could be of assistance. You have a lot of listeners, Max, and I would ask them to go to read this op-ed piece by Betsy. And I wrote to her that my conclusion after all these years is that while many of our colleagues have attempted to engage with these issues on a much narrower basis, but have attempted, but have not put their heart into it and have therefore failed or just given up. But more the problem is all of those of our colleagues who have simply been, as I phrased it, comfortably blind. And while I doubt they can be blind anymore, I just don't know how many museum directors and boards, because one can't do it without the other, are going to move forward in some way other than simply talk about what's happening elsewhere. (laughs) Max, thank you for mentioning my years of railing, but I typically railed, so it was very difficult to discern what I was railing about, probably, from time to time. There were definitely a few handfuls of people who listened and who worked hard to make changes. But I just don't believe that the industry, the art museum industry, is even close to being where they need to be in examining all of those issues, not necessarily just institutional, but the issues that relate to all the personal aspects of this. All I can do is wait and see or rail some more. I certainly answer telephone calls asking for advice about which I can give very little. I'm hoping more and more people are now out of their slumber and willing to look at the issues. And the issues are many, aren't they, Arnold? They start with a study Artnet did a couple of years ago showing that museums acquire very few works by artists of color, and they are typically a small number of artists of color over and over again, and that boards are not diverse, and staff in senior management positions are not and that programs and exhibitions are not, and lastly, that the audience is not. So, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? I think I'm almost too old 
uh, to even deal with the entirety of what you just outlined. A few years ago, I was a Ford Foundation fellow, and my task, self-assigned, of course, was to create a plan in which professionals of color would arise and ultimately assume directorships of museums. It was a plan that started early in college and uh, guaranteed a lot of things, internships, employment, engagement with other people, all of which I had proposed that Ford, with its quite amazing leadership now in Darren Walker, would undertake in a partnership between the Ford Foundation and the Walton Foundation, Alice Walton, with whom I'd spoken about this issue on several occasions, have worked together to at least provide, with I think the AAMD was involved as well, to provide some steps forward in moving people of color toward museum leadership roles. But it's only one step. I know there are others and a few other foundations as well. I was very pleased to see just a few days ago that I'd heard rumblings, but I just uh, saw that Elizabeth Alexander at the Mellon Foundation is also undertaking more programs about social justice. I think with those two leadership foundations, we're going to be hearing about a lot more opportunities. But two foundations, even with all the money that they can put into this and with their leadership, still cannot change the world according to the art museum community. It's going to require a lot of loud railing from young museum directors and some old ones to get this thing moving forward. It's been going on for so many years, Arnold. It's been almost a decade since I brought Michael Lomax, president of the United Negro College Fund, to an Association of Art Museum Directors meeting to announce a new paid internship program for students of color in museums. And here we are, almost a decade later, still talking about baby steps. So much to be done. But things start earlier on. They start in something very veiled and unusual. It's a kind of college of cardinals in museums called the nominating committee. Without being so very dressed up. And no puff of smoke that I've ever been able to discern. But would you give our listeners an insider's view of what it's really like in a nominating committee of an art museum board? I'm I'm almost... Um... I, I, I almost hope you hadn't asked that question. <laughs> I'm hesitating because I want to tell you the truth, but that truth is really very stark. The direct and most honest tale of what happens in a nominating committee is that, oh, you know, there aren't enough people of color to choose from. They're all being sought by the same organizations. 
you know, there's this fiduciary responsibility on the board and most people of color can't meet that responsibility. They're not interested in art museums. They, put quotes around that, are interested in social service organizations that help their, in quotations, communities. And the worst of all, maybe the most honest, is I don't know anyone of color. And it's usually not said because they're not that engaged. They say, I don't know anyone who's black. I don't know anyone who's Hispanic. You know, and I certainly don't know anyone who's black or Hispanic and has money to give. It goes on and on and on from there. And I always have the same response. You know, not everyone on this committee gives money. There are people who are grandfathered in for various reasons. We have artists on the boards who are asked on because of what they do and what we can learn from them. And the same thing applies to those people who are not sitting next to you or down the table from you or just not even the room from you. And it goes on and on and on. And I get angrier and angrier. And then I'm not asked on nominating committees anymore. <laughs> That's the, as they say, the unvarnished truth. Well, that's what we're looking for, but we're not going to solve it today. Arnold, let's turn to a different topic, perhaps no more cheerful, which has to do with New York being able to bounce back. What do you think the odds are the city that we both grew up in will be reclaimed? I can only tell you, I have been away from the city since May. So I know it's changed several times over since then. I, you know, I get reports from my children, my grandchildren who are there, friends. They're all very sad and upset. They like the idea that restaurants have sort of moved out into the street. But coming cold weather, that's going not to work very well. But the question is, will New York come back? I've read a number of articles both pro and con, and also some articles that say, you know, we don't need New York. Who needs New York? Gerald Ford's ultimate dream, <laughs> which some of your listeners don't know, what Gerald Ford said to New York was drop dead. I think it will come back. I think it will take time, probably a long time. You mentioned already the great problem in commercial real estate. A great deal of it is translated into greed. A lot of that was happening already before the coronavirus. You were starting to see many, many stores, certainly in the luxury areas of Upper Madison Avenue and in Tribeca and Soho, close because they couldn't afford the rent. That, of course, has been quadrupled, quintupled, I don't even know how you correctly say eight times. I'm not going to try. And until an agreement between retailers and property owners gets resolved, the 
coronavirus will remain as an excuse, a big excuse, no doubt. But I am very proud to say that if you walked up and down Park Avenue around 57th Street, Phillips remains unboarded. The windows are there, works of art are in the windows, and that made me feel very good. I've only seen it in photographs, but I know so many people who've commented to me about it. If your lease is gone, if you have no control over the space, it's going to close. But little by little, I think it's going to come back, but it's going to be in a different way. I don't think with consumers buying as much as they are online, there'll be a need for as many shops that are really kind of billboards for retail entities. And there certainly won't be the need to have two or three or four in a city like New York, even with its vast population. I think those streets will come back. And with those streets, New York. One of the things I've been ruminating about is the fact that museums are not in the near future going to be able to host galas, exhibition openings, glamorous parties, behind-the-scenes tours, meetings of trustees, and the like. Without that, will the generous donors who have supported museums for generations feel as engaged, or will their support begin to drop off? Well, from what I hear... I think that support is already declining because the generous among those donors are concerned about more than art museums. And going back to social service organizations and others, I think there's been an increase in philanthropy in that direction and a decrease in philanthropy in terms of the art museum, the cultural community, which always happens when there are other issues at stake. But I do. I think that those very personalized touches that people expect, you know, if you can't touch, you can't really do those kinds of programs. A friend of mine was at the Met yesterday and going back today. His response to me was that it was very awkward being there and that the staff appeared very frightened. (laughs) You know, I don't blame them. We've not been to any public place since all of this has begun. I can just imagine how that staff, certainly front of line, all the people directed staff at a place like the Met or any other museum or any other cultural institution, you know, are despite the plexiglass barriers and everything else, they're still afraid. I don't know what is going to change that until more testing is done and the number that we keep hearing from Andrew Cuomo, I think needs to be below two or one and a half or something like that before we could claim any kind of real success and people can be comfortable again. But I know all of the precautions that are being taken at the Brooklyn Museum and every other museum, but it's going to be, again, 
a long time before galas, before large-scale events are going to take place. I do think smaller tours that can be distanced, special small events. I remember we used to hold them in conservation lab. At that point, we never have more than four or six people because we wanted them all to be able to be very close to what we were talking about. But you could do four or six people at a time in that space. But just think how many nights a week or how many days a week you'd have to devote to provide that kind of person-to-person service that many donors expect for their support. But I think that understanding, that contract, that bond of sort is going to, is going to change also. So I want to move to another topic, Arnold, which is about the First Amendment. You're asking me about it? Yes, that is my plan to ask you about it. I'm in the midst of writing a book about this. Yes, sir. You are in the midst of a book about the exhibition Sensation you presented at the Brooklyn Museum in 1999. And I'm hoping you can give us a little preview, a little insight into some of the thinking you're doing as you prepare that. This is 20 years later. One of my memories, well, two of my memories that are most vivid are the unanimity of our board in standing up for what we all believed was right, in that museums should not, must not be censored either by outside force or even worse sometimes, self-censoring. And that applies, again, across the board to theater, libraries, and other cultural institutions, universities, schools. The other thing that's so vivid, and maybe it's because it's where I am in my writing, is the extraordinary quality and interest of the judiciary. I spent a good bit of my (laughs) time in later 1999, in both the federal district court, the Eastern District of Brooklyn, and in the Court of Appeals, also in Brooklyn, and the unanimity in which they supported the First Amendment and freedom of expression. Fast forward 20 years at the convention, whatever that was called, last night, I had thought only 200 conservative federal judges have been appointed thus far, but they're well on their way to 300 federal judges. The world is going to be turned upside down. I hope more people are concerned about the judiciary than just me, but it was amazing the number of amicus briefs that came in from all across the country to support us and moreover to support the First Amendment. So those are the two very positive aspects of what I recall. The one not so positive aspect is the museums in New York 
the cultural institutions in New York not standing together. That was certainly, from my perspective, unforgivable. And it all had to do with the same thing, money and who controlled it. I'm certainly suggest to younger new colleagues that there, I think, are great concerns out there in terms of the judiciary and in making sure that whether on some issues, I think a healthy board does not have to be unanimous, but on the essential issue of what a museum is, what it should be, that unanimity is essential. And maybe it should be discussed more often at board meetings, at the top of the agenda, so that when you get to the end of the board meeting and everyone is tired and wants to go home or get to the buffet or whatever, the idea of talking about the essence of a museum and freedom of expression of the First Amendment needs to be a fresh and lively discussion on every museum's agenda, on every cultural institution's agenda. Some of that unanimity among directors is hard to find when there is disruption from the media. I think that that fear of being called out in one way or another looms large. And you and I share another badge of honor, the adjective tumultuous, applied by the New York Times' former reporter, Carol Vogel, to our respective tenures at New York Museums. I did a quick Google search, and it revealed that she used the same adjective with relish in reference to other director transitions at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Guggenheim, and in multiple other stories. And the fear of being called out is something that I believe a lot of our colleagues worry about. Would you reflect a bit on the impact of mainstream media on art museums? Looking backwards again, if you don't mind, in 1999, uh, no institution could be a better example of seeing one media giant totally reverse its position on an institution, as the New York Times did about the Brooklyn Museum. We were called in editorial after editorial, courageous, on the right side, doing what needed to be done. And then, of course, and I can't get into it, without doing their homework, they were led astray and decried things that we were doing that were not only appropriate and historical, but the kind of day-to-day operations at museums did across the country. And even when some of their own reporters called them out on it, and I'm thinking of Judith Dobrinsky's article, the editorial board still believed whatever it believed and apologized to me and the Brooklyn Museum after it was all over. So I would say the word that museum directors and others should take heed is beware. The media is incredibly important in this country because there would be no country without the media as far as I'm concerned. You know, Max, you and I would both probably know this phrase. People will tell you that headhunters are not your friend. The media is not necessarily your friend. 
they're not paid to be your friend. They're paid to examine what they believe to be newsworthy. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But if you're on the other side of that, you need to be aware of how your institution presents itself, what it does. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that you change course. I'm just saying to be aware and beware. I think those are two very good words in terms of advice. And sage advice it is, Arnold. Listen, let's end on an up note. Tell us an anecdote that you've shared before, but not here, about a work of art that you experienced as a young person that remained with you right up until this day. When I was a kid, in 1949, the Brooklyn Museum purchased an Egyptian object, an ibis coffin. It was, in your mind's eye, think of a duck decoy or a goose decoy. An ibis is a much more elegant bird, and the one they purchased was the most elegant of all, with a silver body, a jeweled eye, and the idea was the ibis coffin would contain the essence of the ibis, the essence of intelligence. And that was how it was revered in Egypt. Well, I think I saw it, not moments after it went on view, but shortly after it went on view. And I thought this was the cat's meow. <laughs> this was to a, you know, a six-year-old or a five-year-old, whatever I was. There was nothing that I loved more than this object. And every time we went to the museum, I would run through the hallways, leaving my mother or whoever I was with far behind, annoying guards until they sort of got used to it, and run up to where the ibis coffin was displayed. God forbid it was taken off view for some reason. I was totally inconsolable. Nothing that was said could make me stop crying. I mean, it was mine. It was my object. And I will tell you an amazing story. When we were moving from Baltimore to New York, to Brooklyn, and I had to pack up all of my books, tons and tons, and portfolios and things that I had collected, I came across a folio and opened it up, and there were enlarged photos of the Ibis coffin and an essay, a long essay, that I had written when I was about 14 years old and what this object meant to me. I don't remember ever taking those photographs, and I certainly do not remember writing this essay, although no one could forge my horrible handwriting which proves how significant objects in museums can be to children and what kind of an effect they can have on them for all these years. And when I got to Brooklyn as director, the first thing I did is I sort of walked down to the Egyptian 
galleries on the third floor. And I went up to the Ibis and I said, I've got you. There are not going to be any problems. Um, so you now know. Arnold, what a great story and a great recollection. And it's a wonderful way to wrap up our very enjoyable conversation today. Thank you for making time. I'm delighted, Max. Absolutely delighted. Always a pleasure to speak with you. We've been speaking today with Arnold Lehman, Senior Advisor to the Chairman of Phillips Auction House and Director Emeritus of the Brooklyn Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.